Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. It's no secret that much of Latin America is struggling today, but there are always bright spots. Where are they as we look ahead to 2023? In Latin America, it's impossible not to mention the case of Guyana. Nobody thinks about that. It's a very small country that is going to be uh, one of the wealthiest countries in the world because of a very large finds of oil and gas. Let's see if they can learn from the experience of others. But the fact is that today the best uh, opportunities to invest are there. Another country that I think has gained the right to be at the top of the list is the Dominican Republic. They have all kinds of malfunctions that we see in Latin America, but there's a lot of, of, of good things to say about the Dominican Republic. And the third is also a small trading country, but very important is Panama. As 2022 draws to a close, we thought it would be a good time to take a big picture look at Latin America, the challenges, as well as some of the unexpected bright spots in both politics and business. Our guest today, Moises Naim, is my friend and one of the region's most decorated and widely followed political commentators. He is the author of the book, The Revenge of Power, which chronicles the rise of autocratic leaders around the world in recent years. That book was recently named by the New Yorker magazine as one of the very best books of 2022. Today, we'll look at where that authoritarian threat is strongest in Latin America. We'll talk to Moises about recent developments in Venezuela, his home country, following the easing of some U.S. sanctions there. And we'll also discuss some potential reasons for optimism about the region's prospects as we head into 2023. Moises is a senior associate at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, a columnist for El País, and a member of America's Quarterly's editorial board. We're privileged to have him here with us. My friend, welcome to the AQ Podcast. Hi, Brian. Thanks a lot for the invitation. Moises, you are, for many people in Washington and Europe, the first person they call when they want to understand what's happening in Latin America. It's been a tough decade of economic stagnation, and democratic backsliding. But when people ask you what's going on with Latin America right now, what is your answer? Indebtedness and the clash between incumbent presidents that don't want to leave and new faces that want to become uh, the important players without having the experience to run a government. Let me start with indebtedness. Um, Latin America has always been highly indebted. That dependence on foreign credit is crucial to maintaining whatever stability one can hope to have in many of the countries. But at this point, I think this is a stealthy, uh, for now, not sufficiently visible factor. Latin America has unsustainable levels of indebtedness that when combined with uh, higher interest rates, make the situation very, very hard to sustain. So expect um, instability, financial instability. That's first. Second is go around the region and see the old presidents. You see Lula da Silva, you see, still see uh, Cristina Kirchner as vice president uh, of, uh, of Argentina. You have seen all these presidents that are 
old-timers or players. And then there is this uncanny appetite that uh, people have for new faces. Voters want to vote for outsiders. And that has been recognized by the presidents, people that are not newcomers, uh, but they present themselves, they package themselves, they brand themselves as the new face in the block. President Petro in Colombia presents himself as a new face, as a different person. Well, he has been doing politics, has been in politics all his life. People want to vote for new people, for new faces, for new brands of politics, for new ways of running government or politics. And uh, so you have the outsiders, newcomers, new faces struggling to get into power and at time getting it. And Bukele in El Salvador is an example of that. Boric in Chile is also an example of that. And the all-time presidents. And that clash uh, is defining politics and political conflictivity in the region from north to south. Not the most positive picture, Moises. Especially if you add the high levels of polarization. Polarization has become a defining trait of democracies around the world. And you find it in Spain, in Italy, in France, in Israel, in Asia. You know, polarization is the name of the game in politics around the world. Well, so this was my next question, which is, you know, renewal is difficult everywhere. We have an 80-year-old president here in the United States. We have polarization all over the world, as you've pointed out. Do you think that these problems are simply, you know, local franchises in Latin America of global issues? Do you think it's worse, perhaps, in the region than it is in some other spots well, one cannot generalize, and uh, the world is very varied and diverse. And also, the polarization that I'm talking about is like cholesterol. There is good polarization and bad polarization. That's how cholesterol works. You have good cholesterol that is healthy and good to have, and the one that kills you. There is a polarization that is normal, that is electoral, that is democratic, that is profoundly, profoundly democratic. And so, yes, there are fights, there are divisions, there are polarization between different factions, between different parties, ideologies, and interests. But then at the end, there is an election that is respected, that is accepted, that is legitimate, and uh, someone wins. And that's good polarization. There's the other polarization that essentially paralyzes the country. And uh, we have seen an example of that in the United States. The polarization is so huge, is so frequent, is so prevalent that it's very hard to make the decisions about the great choices facing this country. And around the world, you can see the polarization that paralyzes, uh, that, that stops, that essentially happens between groups that consider their rivals as unacceptable, as illegitimate, as not a valid contender for power, doesn't have the right to exist as an option. So that's bad cholesterol. That's bad polarization. That is anti-democratic and one has to fight it. You talk about polarization as one of the so-called three Ps in your recent book, The Revenge of Power. Can you tell us what the other two are? The three Ps are populism, polarization, and post-truth. Populism, we all know what it is. It is also often confused as an ideology. Populism is not an ideology. Populism is a bag of tricks, tactics, strategies, uh, behaviors that present a divided nation in which there is an acceptable, greedy, horrible, exploitative elite that is exploiting the noble people and often needs, therefore, somebody, a leader that protects and represents the interests of the noble people. This is has existed forever and there's nothing new there, except that now 
that kind of populism has been amplified and powered by polarization, which has brought all kinds of divisions and wedges in countries from gender to regional stuff, to ideology, to religion, to everything. So countries are now a quilt made of very different interests coexisting badly. And that is then amplified again by social media, by post-truth, that the third P is post-truth, is the notion that uh, you create conditions in which no one knows exactly who to believe, what to believe, who to trust. And uh, we have seen that, and uh, they intertwine in complex ways, but create a modern version of the forces that define politics in a lot of countries. What have we learned over the last, you know, 10, 12 years since this democratic recession, as some call it, accentuated? What have we learned about the most effective tactics for battling against these leaders who either are authoritarians or have authoritarian tendencies? We need to take out their masks. They present themselves uh, as uh, Democrats, where in fact their behaviors, their strategy, their agenda is very non-democratic. They are the presidents that get to power through the electoral process, but then as soon as they're in power, they start the dismantling, the checks and balance that characterize and define a democracy. And they often do that stealthily. They often do that without significant denunciations on the part of civil society or the politicians or the media. They get away with presenting themselves as Democrats. And we have seen them around the world. And so the first job, the first task at hand is to show the world how these pretend Democrats are in fact autocrats and make them more visible to everyone. And the second is important task is making voters less gullible to the promises of charlatans and demagogues and liars. It's quite amazing to see in Latin America and elsewhere in the world, people believing in candidates and the promises that they will, you know, they're not serious. There's not going to happen, but somehow they serve to drive voters uh, during the election. I have heard people say, and I think I agree, that 2022 has seen progress in these kinds of efforts that you're describing. We saw midterm elections here in the United States uh, in which, uh, of course, conservatives and Republicans won elected office all over the country. But the candidates who were questioning the validity of the 2020 election and running for positions like the secretary of state at the state level where they could control future elections, all of them lost. And many other hard right candidates associated with Donald Trump also lost. We also saw the defeat of a sitting president in Brazil who had tried for months prior to the election to put Brazil's electoral process in doubt. It's been a bad year, you could argue, for Vladimir Putin. And even Xi Jinping's power has recently proven to be less than absolute. Do you share the view that perhaps we might look back on this year as the, the beginning of a more positive trend? Yes, absolutely. It's the beginning because there is, to the list that uh, you mentioned and I share, and again, the surprises of watching people in the streets of cities in Russia or in China or the women in Iran, uh, those are where all surprises. 
analysts, you know, no analyst was able to anticipate that these kinds of highly destabilizing processes are taking place. I'm not suggesting that as a result of that, Xi Jinping and Putin are going to be you know, taken out of power, but surely in the notion that they were absolutely immune to these kinds of trends is part of the story of 2022, as you say. So yes, there is a, a list of good news, but let's not forget that uh, there's also a list of very of, of bad news in which autocracies are entrenching, are becoming more uh, profoundly defensive, strong, and able to repel the democratic attacks. We'll be back after a short break with Moises's thoughts on the countries that he thinks are doing well, opportunities for investment, and how he sees the Biden administration's new approach to Venezuela. The America's Quarterly Podcast is sponsored by The Boeing Company. Boeing supports the commitment of Latin America's aviation industry to reach net zero by the year 2050. Boeing has led this effort by committing to certify its aircraft to fly on 100% sustainable fuels and welcomes recent commitments by airlines in the region to increase their use. Moises, I think it's safe to say that uh, the tone of our conversation today has been focused on the challenges that Latin America is facing, but you know as well as I do that the region is cyclical and also that even when the chips are down, there are opportunities in certain sectors for investment, for civil society, and all kinds of areas. As you think about the region, what are the areas, what are the countries, where are the places where you have some optimism that you think represent interesting opportunities for a variety of people? I have been writing about the surprising countries in the world, countries that uh, essentially run, you know, against uh, the, the tide and against the trends or the negative trends that we have been discussing. In Latin America, it's impossible not to mention the case of Guyana. Nobody thinks about that. It's a very small country of about 800,000 inhabitants that is going to be one of the wealthiest countries in the world because of a very large finds of oil and gas. And so the consequences are immense. Let's see if they can learn from the experience of others and understand that oil in vast quantities is terrible, is malignant. But the fact is that today the best opportunities to invest are there. Another country that I think has gained the right to be in the list, at the top of the list, is the Dominican Republic. They have messy politics, they have corruption, they have all kinds of malfunctions that we see in Latin America. But we have also seen a country that has been growing, that has managed very well the uh, immigration crisis uh, that they have, not concerning uh, Haiti. Haiti is a big problem for the Dominican Republic. It's, you know, There's nothing worse than being and the neighbor of a failed country, and that's the case of the Dominican Republic. But they they are managing well the COVID, tourism, policies, macro. There's a lot of uh, good things to say about the Dominican Republic. And the third is also a small trading country, but very important is Panama. The, the scale of the investments is not what you would get in Mexico or in Brazil or even Argentina. These are very small countries, but uh, surely they're showing the way. You know, it's funny you mentioned the size of these countries. I would also put two other small countries on the list, Costa Rica and Uruguay. And I sometimes ask myself, gosh, why is it the small ones that are doing well? Couldn't we at least have one of our big countries that 
you know, would be something that we could hang our hats on in terms of optimism. What do you make of that? You're absolutely right. And I agree with you, uh, including Costa Rica and Uruguay. They deserve to be in the list, surely. Let's see what happens uh, with Lula. Let's see if the new Lula is uh, the old one that uh, essentially wants to repeat more or less the same pattern and the same street, or is the Lula that is thinking about history and wants to go down in history, not like the president that was jailed for corruption, but the president that took Brazil again in a path of uh, more social justice and better economics and all that. If that happens and Lula, and that needs the private sector to happen, that cannot happen without an active, enthusiastic presence of the private sector. You know, Brazil can become uh, one of the most interesting emerging markets again. But again, that requires the leadership of a Lula that uh, thinks about history and not about small-minded kinds of dynamics that sometimes we see in the electoral politics there. Well, as you listed some countries that you are optimistic about, how about people? Who are some of the individuals in business or politics who are doing interesting things right now? Oh, gosh. Well, no, it's very interesting what we see happening in the world of startups. Startups very often have very low barriers to entry and people with the lower levels of capital can develop a platform that then becomes global and then becomes part of a success story. The list uh, is never ending. America's Quarterly routinely uh, introduces us to people and initiatives that one would have not detected. And I congratulate you and your colleagues for the job you're doing in disseminating innovation and creativity and entrepreneurship in the region. I don't have a list of names, you know, but I tell anybody that's interested in the names of the people that are doing innovative things that are promising that are the future to take a look at the pages of America's Quarterly. Well, thank you. That's a very, very kind endorsement, Moises. Before we go, I do want to ask you in this final section of the show about Venezuela, your home country, and I know a cause that is very important to you personally. Let me try to set the stage here. The Biden administration recently decided to ease some sanctions on Venezuela, allowing Chevron to resume pumping oil again, although with very strict conditions. The oil can only be shipped to the United States And any profits cannot go to the Venezuelan government. Instead, they must be used to pay Venezuela's creditors in the United States. Now, this happened after Nicolas Maduro resumed formal talks with Venezuela's opposition. The Biden administration has said the oil deal is contingent upon further progress in these negotiations. Nonetheless, you've been critical of the Biden team for taking this step. Why? Well, first, let me say clearly that I uh, was and continue to be a supporter of President Biden. I voted for him, even though I'm not a member of his party. That gives me the credentials to uh, sincerely, honestly criticize the mess that they have created in Latin America in general and in Venezuela in particular. All these decisions that the Biden administration has taken are not part of a grand strategy. There is not a, a clear set of ideas of how to deal with this. This was propelled by lobbyists, by a very large corporation, Chevron, that was trying to recover their assets and make them more viable. This is not part of a grand vision of a grand strategy. This is just, you know, we need oil, let's get some oil. 
Let me play devil's advocate a little bit on this one. The sanctions regime was not apparently making progress in terms of its goal of inducing a transition to democracy in Venezuela. The moment where Juan Guaido was recognized by much of the international community, including the United States, but many other Latin American governments, as well as Canada, European governments as well, that moment has passed. Now, I don't personally have any faith in the Maduro dictatorship's willingness to give away power via these negotiations. I don't see it. But you could, Moises, argue at the same time that the previous strategy was leaving Venezuela to the Russians and the Chinese. As far as, you know, with the United States being absent, it left room for these other foreign actors to gain influence in Venezuela. You could also argue that easing of sanctions could eventually improve the humanitarian crisis for Venezuelans, which has been very severe. What's your reaction to all of that? If the best they can do against that is what we have seen, I'm very worried. Again, this was not part of a strategy that included the containment of these new superpowers operating in the region. This is just an improvised way of putting together different pieces led by very a very short-sighted way of thinking about why is Venezuela failing at trying to recover democracy and oust a dictator and how the international community and how the United States are working to create that. It's indefensible what the Biden administration now presents and shows as a Latin America policy is shameful. So much of the Venezuela story for me over the last 10 plus years has been one of the limitations of U.S. power and the inability to affect change on the ground, even when the strategy during the Trump years was one of maximum pressure in coordination with at the time, the Duque administration in Colombia and others, when it, it really did seem, at least for a short time, like maybe Juan Guaido you know, might be able to take power. What, if anything, do you think the administration should be doing differently? I mean, I, you referenced the absence of a grand strategy, but it's not clear to me, again, with specific regard to Venezuela, what the U.S., is capable of doing. This may just be beyond their ability to shape events. Isn't that what the last couple of years have taught us? One factor that we have not discussed and it's very important is uh, that Venezuela is an occupied nation. Venezuela is not an independent nation. There is a superpower to the north that is calling the shots in Venezuela and that superpower in the north is Cuba. Uh, Cuba has been controlling decision-making in Venezuela by the, by the Venezuelan government, first with Chavez, then with Maduro. Cuba is an occupying force. Cuba is a occupying power. And it's, and it's doing to Venezuela what occupying powers do to the countries that they occupy, which is uh, loot them and, uh, and extract all kinds of benefits and uh, resources from those countries. The story of Cuba uh, running the show and the story of Venezuela as a occupied country has not been sufficiently debated. What the United States can do and should do is sit down with Q- the Cubans and say, okay, we are willing to start talking about ways of, uh, you know, you're going under. Uh, Cuba is bankrupt, has always been bankrupt, but Cuba is uh, becoming even more, uh, uh, the situation in Cuba is now even more dire than normal. 
so you know there is an opportunity of doing that. I know I know very well what are the limitations and what you know the, the Florida angle and the electoral angle and Florida as a, as a place where major clashes between uh, the Cubans and the others are take place. So I am aware of that. I am aware of how complicated is what I'm suggesting. But I see no way out. Why would you meet with um, a group that is just representing the interests of, uh, of another country? Go straight to the, the essence of the story. And the essence of the story is that uh, a lot of what Venezuela gets away with uh, is based on the fact that uh, it's guided by Cuban interests. Where do you think Venezuela will be 10 years from now? Where do you see this story headed? The story 10 years from now is a story of the relaunching uh, of a nation where a lot of things can be invented and tried for the first time. Venezuela has the wealth and including even the human capital that uh, has been expelled from the country. But, uh, you know, there is a very, very strong uh, rich, interesting, competent diaspora uh, just awaiting to go back. And in Venezuela, there are still uh, a lot of human resources, human capital of people that has refused to leave and are fighting every day to build an, a new modern democracy. Does that imply that the Maduro dictatorship will be history or is that going to happen either way? It is obvious that the Maduro uh, regime is all, only supported by the military and the Cubans. If you take the military out and the Cubans out, Maduro doesn't have, other than the billions that he and his cronies and families have stolen, Maduro has nothing to offer to the Venezuelans or to the rest of Latin America or the world. Moises, I mean, I hope you're right about this transition to democracy, but the obvious question is, how hypothetically would this happen? Who would have said that the women in Iran would create a different political situation? Who would have said that Russians in the streets would challenge uh, Vladimir Putin? Who would have said that Xi Jinping, that he would be challenged by people saying, I don't care if you jail me or even kill me, I'm going to go in the streets to protest on the way you are governing me. So I mentioned these three cases because they are three different cases that end in the same way. No one anticipated that. And therefore, no one will anticipate the way Venezuela will open up to, to profound change. But it's going to be a combination of internal forces with external factors. Well, I guess time will tell. Uh, I hope you're right, though, Moises. And uh, thank you once again for joining us on the AQ podcast. Thank you, Brian, for the invitation. Thank you for listening to the America's Quarterly Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly Podcast is produced by Luisa Franco and edited in partnership with Human Group Media.